0: Welcome to My Life, Cheshire Supplied, episode 297. We're coming now to the close of the month of Shvat and the beginning and opening of the month of Adar, the middle of this week, Rishchaydish Adar. Every month has its own energy, has its own unique personality, and unique opportunities. Month of Adar, Mazel Dogim, its sign is a fish, which is always a sign of blessing. Body Masli which means that Masl is a healthy Masl and it's key, the key theme and energy and power of this month is joy. When other enters, we increase in joy. So that's a great way to open a My Life Chassidus Applied episode, and this episode is dedicated in honor, appropriately in honor of Mendy and Chayabina Jacobson upon their wedding, Rosh Chodesh of this week, dedicated by the Jacobson family. So yes, we'll start with that joy, simcha. We're told that it's a mitzvah, ivdu Hashem be'simcha, to serve God with joy. As I just said, that's all year round, and in the month of Adar specifically, marben be'simcha, we increase in joy. And as the Rebbe emphasizes time and again, that like all matters of holiness. Mylon Bakedesh, that means the increase of joy, is every day of other, we increased one day after the next, more and more. Now joy, excuse me, joy is a complicated sentiment, because some people say, I'm just not a happy person. Some people say, what can I do to become joyous? It seems to be impossible to regulate an emotion. If good things happen to me, I can be joyous. If bad things happen, I can't. But then the Torah would never tell us, to be joyous, to serve with joy and, it's a sur- and it says it's a mitzvah and a mitzvah cannot be asked of us to do if we're not capable of doing it. it wouldn't make any sense it would be actually cruel that tells us that joy is in the capacity and the reach of each one of us no matter what you're going through in life joy is a resource an asset that is the birthright of every human being Simply put, your soul is a naturally joyous entity. Look at children. Except perhaps in some extenuating circumstances that are unhealthy, every child is born naturally joyous, naturally giggles, naturally happy. It's only later when they learn from adults that impress upon them, on impressionable children, that there's a thing called being sad. And I'm not talking about sadness a child cries because it's in pain. Talking about a more ongoing form of sadness. So joy is the natural state of the human being. Why? Because the soul knows exactly why it's here. It was sent here by God on a divine mission. And when you know why you're here, you know the purpose. That itself is joy. That means you're needed. It means you're indispensable. It means that you're not negligible. You can't be dismissed. You can't be silenced. Because your voice, your song, your expression is exactly what is necessary in this world. Imagine you had that feeling all the time, 24-7. That's joy. Joy doesn't always mean dancing and, and, and celebrating always in the most obvious way. Joy is also an internal state that you are, in a way, constantly happy. You're in a happy place. Now when what happens, something negative may happen, that doesn't take away from your natural joy of your soul. That means now the natural joy has to now navigate through these difficult challenges. We're coming last week from Chav Beis the twenty-second of Shvad, the yard side, the thirty-second yard side of the Brebitzin Chaim She was once asked, "When was the happiest time of your life?" So you know what most people would say—they think back, "When was that special day?" Or when I was a child, or when there was something happened. Her response: "Right now," which of course carries the profundity—the message that always, now, was always, always the happiest. If you had asked her a year before she would have said then. Because a happy person is a state of being, it's not a verb. Joy is not just is not just a verb with meaning an action that when you're acting happy, you're happy. It's a state of constant happiness. Tev lev Mishta Tamid, as the end of Aruch Narachar Chaim, which talks actually about the laws of Purim, Purim cotton when there's a shnasa Iber, a, a uh, leap year. So the end is Tev Lev mishta Tamid. And as brought already by commentaries, and the Rebbe cites it, the beginning of Shulchan Aruch is also Tamid. Shavisi la Shayam Negdi I stand humbled, I stand, I stand. Um, everything is equalized as I stand before God, always, Tamid. And the second tamid, there were two tamid in the base of I me, mean, the carbon tamid in the morning and the afternoon, is the then tev mister mishta tamid. That tev leiv, good heart, that is mishta tamid always celebrating, tamid. Or how could you say tamid? Tamid means even when you're asleep, yes, because a happy person is a happy person 24-7. That happiness takes on different shapes and forms. So as we go into the month of others, that's our first lesson and message, which is that there's a simple line within you, it's about accessing it, and it's a state of being as well as an action. The mitzvah is to bring that state of being, that natural state, into action, actualization and concretizing it in real life. We're also going to be speaking, since this is the week of Pasha Truma, we'll talk about Truma, but before I say that, I should have really announced it earlier, but let me say, this is a few hours left now to this annual, sixth annual My Life Chassidah Supplied Contest. The deadline is 11.59 tonight, meaning late, late sun, midnight tonight, basically. And this year, as you know, there's the essay track for the $10,000 first prize, $3,600 second prize, $1,000 third prize, and a $500 student prize. And then there is also the, an extra track that we made this year, a special track, a creative track, an artistic track. All the details and guidelines, and you have only a few hours left, but you know what? It's never too late. Are available at chesitasupply.com slash contest. So grab the opportunity. This is the last few hours to put your final touches on it and show it to someone. Make sure that you follow the guidelines. We've already gotten quite a few submissions. And I say again and again, many submissions lack sometimes following simple guidelines. For example, in the artistic track, It requires an opening paragraph written, a cover note saying what you're going to do. Simple thing, just explain what you're doing. That counts for points. Follow the guidelines, and we're excited, and we'll be announcing the judges. They're prestigious judges, both for the essays, judges for the artistic track. A special Hebrew contest, which actually has its own deadline with its own prizes, and that you can find at D-I-R-A-L-O, Dot org, dot uh, dot com actually, DRLA.com, which is the Israeli track, and there you can find all the details about that Hebrew contest. Okay, so again, this is the final call, last hours, and please do your best, and you can win that $10,000 first prize. Okay. So now let's talk about Pasha Truma. Truma. So Pasha Truma, of course, has many themes. One is the most prominent one, that it carries the third pillar after the Jews left Egypt and the parting of the sea. Then came Matan Teter, the receiving of the mandate. And then came the third stage, all in this book of Shemois, of Exodus, building of the Mishkan. v'shachanti So the chapter begins with God telling Moses to go to the people and gather their donations. Silver, gold, silver, copper, silver, gold, copper, and all the other materials. And then he shall build for me a sanctuary. I shall dwell among you. This is the shortest mission statement of all. Two words. The mission of all existence, that God should dwell among you. In the words of the Medrash, God desired to have a home. In the lowest of worlds, the material world. And the Mishkin is the microcosm of that home. So it carries within the mission of all our lives. When a person is able to be focused with that, you can can rest assured that there's a joy. You know why you're here. You take all your life and you go to that focal point that connects all the fragmented details toward the purpose. So that's just an opening to the supply, just from the, 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 the statement itself of the building of the Mishkan. But we received a number of questions, and sometimes they're on the Pasha, so I will address some questions connected to this, as well as some connection to last week's Pasha that we read yesterday, Pasha Mishpatim. <clears throat> so let's begin with this question. Now that we've established what the purpose is, so we know, let me just elaborate a bit more, that this mitzvah us the is a mitzvah. It's mitzvah nitzchik. It's always a mitzvah tmidis, meaning it's always a mitzvah. That's why the building of the base by a sedition later by Dov HaMelech and Shlema HaMelech and then by are all an extension of this mostly migdash So it began with the portable sanctuary, the mishkan that they carried and they traveled with through their forty years, the wilderness. Then later there was mishkan Shiloh and there were other Mishkan that were still temporary abodes, and then came the permanent base on the place where God chose Har the place that God chose for the base by Bayis Lish in Yerushalayim har abayis, as we know it today and that was a permanent place it, the temple was destroyed but Kedusha Le'ez came up. the holiness never leaves that place that's why you're not allowed to go on the temple mount and then came the second base Until this day, we're waiting for what? For the final third, a temple that will be permanent. And that is one of the signs of coming of Mashiach, as the Ramban says. So here Solomon asks the question, why can we not build the third temple by ourselves? Why do we have to wait? Since it's a mitzvah, why not just build it? It says in Paschus through us in the Middash of translated, and they shall make me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. They means us. We are told that we have to make it. So why can't we hire an architect, make a, crowd, a, make a crowdfunding page to pay for it, and build the third base of me by ourselves? Very good question, right? Well, by, Sish and Baya as well as the was a Suvi from the Ebeshtim. The Ebeshtim commanded it. And yes, that command is a permanent command. But the timing of when to build a base HaMikdosh is completely up to God. The famous sikha, that the Rebbe Friedricha Kareb said when he came out of prison, at the Yud-based Hamos, citing his father in the sikha that the father said, he he says, Nishmetun von Meaning, not with our will did we go into Golos. If it was up to us, we would never have allowed the of to be destroyed. It was up to God. And not with our will will we go out of Golis, This will be up to Hashem, to God, to Abishthar, God. Now, that does not mean that we cannot do things that expedite the process. As the of says in Tanya, our work is the keli makes the container when we transform the world and we prepare it for the gula, then will come the response, go build the Beis So the Rambam says in Halacha, in Hilchas Malachim, chapter 11, the end of his magnum opus, Mishnah Teda, he says, after he explains the criteria, what makes someone cheskas Mashiach, assumed, presumed to be Mashiach, Someone born to the house of David, someone who keeps Torah mitzvahs, who influences, and inspires others, battles a war. Then it says, when he wins that battle, and then even the beis and he rebuilds the beis in its right place, and gathers all the Jews from the exiles, kibbutz goliath. Then we know he's mashiach vade. He does not do this himself. Mashiach does not come because he wants to, or because we want him to. It's when God decides the time has come. How does God decide? We're told. You do your work, and I will make that decision. We don't have the right or the, or the, the, the possibility of just deciding when we're going to build the Beis HaMikdash, because it's not just a physical building. Yes, you can build a house. This physical building needs an environment where you can have a pure environment where you can serve in that Beis HaMikdash to serve whom? God. This isn't just our choice when we're going to build a, a new shul, or even build or a home, or even a new shul this is a particularly unique home, and that is the home for God, So it's very clear that this is not something in our hands, halachically and so on. There have been movements that have suggested that, but it was never accepted in any mainstream halachic way, and even those that say that it's possible have to bend over backwards to find real sources for it, that without God's direct instruction to Mashiach, now there is a discussion what comes first is it the first all the gathering of the exiles to Israel or then and then even, and, and then you build a house or the other way around and the has a famous a long letter about it in English Kadesh. but that's not relevant to our discussion here the point being is what we have to do is our part now is someone moving to it's soul part of it some say that maybe part of it the Rebbe spoke about the fact that many Jews going to Hetzal is definitely a stepping stone toward the Gola. But the point is, we can't force God's hand. At the same time, we don't stand by passively. We do whatever it takes that the, the tells us what to do. Tether and mitzvahs, y'futsu meh n'secheh the things we were told to do. So clearly, we have a mandate, we have instructions, but not directly building it. So as much as we'd be desirable and what we'd like and so on, it's not how it works. Because as I said, the Beit is not just a building, you have to have this presence of the Shekhinah there. It means you have to have God's cooperation, and I would say even more than cooperation, God's... Wish that the time has come and that you can fulfill everything you need to do in the Beis HaMidosh. It's not just a sightseeing tour, God forbid. It's not just a tourist attraction. It's a place of holiness where offerings are brought, where all the services that are done in the Beis HaMidosh are done. And that's where all the shlemahs of mitzvahs, as the Rambam explains, all the mitzvahs that will be able to come to fruition when the Beis HaMidosh is there. And as long as the Beis HaMidosh is not there, there are many mitzvahs that can't be done in the fullest sense of the word. Some can't be done at all. And that is a divine edict and a divine um, commandment that we are awaiting. But again, this does not mean we stand by idly. We have an active role, especially how the Rebbe emphasizes, Tut says, you can do whatever you can, which is through our refining of the world, or teach, learning about Gullah, teaching about it, living with it, preparing the ground, that we can then open our eyes and see the gullahs upon us, and then God says, okay, here's the time, here's Mashiach, rebuild the Beis Amidash, and all that follows. So let's now go over to some questions on last week's Parsha. So we talked about the Parsha Mishpatim. So here were a few questions that came in. Why does the Torah list many thou shalt nots in Parsha's Mishpatim? Parsha Mishpatim, remember, comes after Parsha's Yisra. Yisra was this chapter where we read about Sinai, the revelation, and the giving of Torah and mitzvot. Then comes Mishpatim, Ve'elah Mishpatim, and continues these are the laws. Many laws. So the question was asking why are there so many shall nots, meaning Loisa said, do not do in Mishpatim, which comes chronologically after this parting of the sea in Pasha B'Shalach. So the Jews left Egypt, then on their way, seven days later, was the parting of the sea, Shvetash Shel Pesach, and 49 days later, from leaving, 50 days later, was the mountain Terah. And then followed that was Mishpatim. So the question is asking why are there so many shall nots after they parted, after this day they, they witnessed. The parting of the sea. After seeing open miracles at the splitting of the sea, how is it even possible that someone would do a sin? Yeah, I have the same question. It's a very good question. However, the question, unfortunately, is a much broader one. And what about after seeing the miracles in Mitzrayim? Is it only the parting of the sea? And what about after the miracle, after the revelation at Sinai itself, and then they went ahead and built a golden calf? Not sure why. Dafke the laws of Mesopotam that talk a lot about the say so Yes, it talks about laws of litigation. Many thou shall not. I mean, they did the cardinal sin of building a golden calf. Not taking away from your question, I'm just adding to it. And what about Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, in Garden of Eden, where they had everything, paradise? Yitzir kapov of zbarachu, created by God Himself, and still they fell. The answer is that's exactly how the world works. God created an agnostic universe. His presence divided, created the, the, the world with the divine presence revealed there, but at the same time left room for free will. And we have the animal soul. And Ein eber aveire, you ever wonder what that means? It says a person does not do a sin unless they have, enters in them a spirit of folly. Some say, Shtus, insanity, a spirit of madness. Why? It's coming from Yetzirah. You have an evil temptation. You have a temptation. You're tempted, seduced to do something negative. Why is the Talmud dismissing it as some type of Ruach Shtos? Like some new spirit, some weird spirit, strange spirit entered you. Because an Aveda by nature means displacement. Havara. Aveda from the word Havara means Shus, You moved away. You're misaligned with, from your purpose. Mitzvah means connection. Tzavsav echibur. When you're aligned, misaligned, the machine not aligned with its purpose. So no normal person would put their hand in fire, right? No normal person would do a sin that hurts their soul and hurts their life's purpose. So how is it possible? Says the Gemara Ruach that moment they weren't normal. Something abnormal going on, something not natural. So God allowed in this existence the possibility for that to happen. Which means you could see a miracle, you could see many miracles. You could see them in the most revealed way, but still there's that other voice. You still need need to make the effort. That, live by what you've seen. So a miracle is not a guarantee that everything's going to go well. A miracle, yes, is a wake up call. It's a revelation, and if you appreciate it, and you have gratitude that they said Oz Yasher, it can help. But at the end of the day, it's a choice we make. You see people who saw and see no miracles and they make the right choices. You've seen people who lived privileged lives and given all the miracles. There's a very powerful letter from the Rebbe where he compares other Mechav and Eden to Rachman of Litzlan, a person in Auschwitz. Other Mechav and Eden had everything. They had everything. They didn't have to work. There were no, pain, no labor pains. Everything was smooth. Paradise itself. And yet, what happened? They ate from the tree of knowledge. They transgressed. There are people who grew, who lived in a concentration camp, had nothing, deprived of it all, tortured, oppressed, the most dehumanized way, most most obscene way. And yet, they woke up and said, "Modani," and they had gratitude to God. So you see, having revelation, having things very beautiful and god 's presence doesn't always mean guarantee that you're going to act on it it 's all about a person's choice. okay The next question about slavery. Hi, thanks for your classes i'm looking out every week for them I've learned today 's portion of the Torah and we learn about slavery. Yeah, right in the beginning avidivity then goes on different types of servants and slaves. I found it hard to understand the concept of selling a daughter for a maidservant and even more that the boss should marry her. This is a minor girl and the boss is an old man. Why should we think this will be a good match? So I discussed this very directly in episode 246, which would be exactly a year ago, this Mishpat. Um, and just briefly, a few things that need to be pointed out. The word slavery, we all associate obviously with oppressive slavery, like the slavery of the Jews in Egypt, or the slavery in contemporary times, whether it's black, the black slavery in America or other countries that put that, uh, that, um, that enslaved a minority or a majority, and we see that as tremendous oppression, and it is. It's an inhumanity. The Torah also does. That's why you find that when a She'ev who sold himself into slavery in order for financial reasons, <coughs> excuse me, when he wants to remain with his master, it's not a simple thing. Because God says, you're my servant. You're not the servant of my servant. And they pierce a hole in his ear because this is the ear that heard "Anoich Hashem alekecha. So we see it's not a positive thing as well. Nevertheless, what's most important to remember is that the slavery talked about in the Mishpatim is not the word slavery that we always use. That's not the right word to use. It's more servitude, servant. First of all, the evidentity that I just said is not placed into slavery. He himself sold himself. There are people who cannot pay their debts. So one of the ways was to serve. We have servants today too. They're called waiters. They're called doormen. They're called taxi drivers. We don't call them slaves because there are guidelines. But the Torah has guidelines as well. I elaborated a lot more in that program. But the point being is the Torah is humanistic. God would never allow a person to be tortured, a person to be mistreated, and all the laws, if you look at the laws of the servitude in this chapter, you'll find that you have actually an obligation, and it's not very appealing to ha- to have a servant. Because you have obligations that actually precede your own rights. They're rights. Not to mention what happens after Schmidt by Schmitta and Yevel, the release of all servants. So it was a financial matter, in those days that was one of the ways people they sold themselves, they sold themselves, they allowed themselves to become servants for pay. As far as the Omevriya goes, if you look at the laws again, they are very humane. And here again, was a financial reason. And yes, if you want to keep her, you have to marry her. That was actually considered noble. She's not your slave. She's not your servant. She's your wife. That's why there are those rules. So you really look into it and, and get rid of the stereotype. Or stereotype. His, slavery, as in history, it's a very different type of servant. And servitude is in Pasha mishpatim. We never advocated such a thing. Slavery was never considered to be the way we understand slavery. A totally ab- abolition, the total um, abolishment of people's rights. Abnegation, I should say. Abolition was actually the abolition of slavery. The total abnegation of a person's complete rights. They were creating the divine image, and so on. Now, Chassidus talks about the idea of an Eved, an Eved an Eved Kanani, Eved Neman, Eved Poshut, different servants as examples of serving God which, of course, lifts the whole thing up to another level, which is how Chassidus explains this chapter. Okay. Since I mentioned previous episodes, let me go back. Other than Truma, I also discussed in episodes 56, 102, 152, 201, and 247. These cross-referenced archives can be found at Xidisupply.com, where you also have the place to submit the essays and all the details about the essay, previous essay contests posted so you can see examples of good essays as well as a forum where you can submit anonymously any question you like. Okay. Next question about Parshas Mishpatim. Actually, we have two more on Mishpatim. The Pasha teaches prohibition against mixing meat with milk. If we mix Chesed and Gvur, do we not get to fetus? So the details of this. The Pasha teaches us not to mix meat and milk. Right, and from there we derive not to mix meat and milk according to Isaiah in 125a the questioner asks meat represents Gvuda and milk represents chesed and shouldn't be mixed you don't mix gvurah and chesed my question is if we mix chesed and gvuda, don't we get to fetis, which is the perfect balance of chesed and gvuda? correct you find in this. you find in many places His hiskalogos the idea of interconnectivity, complementation of two forces actually creates a more powerful force. Teferis, beauty, is a combination of the red and the blue, or the white and the red, of Chesed and Gvura. Teferis is beauty. Like all things beautiful, it's a combination, and we see it as harmony. So why suddenly does it say that Chesed and shouldn't be mixed as in Bosa B'chalov? The same question can be asked not just in the world of, of animals, which is meat and milk, but also in the world of vegetation. We have the Isra of Kalayim. Certain, certain vegetation should not be mixed together, should not be grafted. We have Kalayim also. Certain animals should not be bred together. And we have Shatnus, linen and wool. On the other hand, shatness in tzitzes is allowed and the Kahanim, their garments did have both. So which one is it? Is it allowed to mix the two or not allowed? So this is not the first time the question has been asked. This is a question that's asked in Chassidus. We'll begin with Eira Teira Nach. On Avim page 132. And then Lekut HaSichas Chelek Volume 29, page 122. From two powerful Sikhs, Three, I should say. Mishpatim, that the Rebbe spoke about. Mishpatim, Tavshin Lamed Hei, Lamed Vav, and Tavshin Mem. So the Rebbe actually spoke on that Zoyhar, in Imishpatin, that his father discusses. The Rebbe's father, in Yitzchak. Briefly, the answer is that yes, mixing chestna and Gvura has in a tremendous quality, but it has to be done in the right way. In Gedusha, his scholars can be not just healthy, can actually reach the highest levels. But in Klipa, where there's no bittel, where there's no humility, where there's self-interest then mixing things can actually be destructive. So the famous Rabbeinu Bahai when he explains Kalayim, and sachrish in Pashach Kiseitze, not breeding and not mixing animals as well as vegetation and other forms of mix, says because mevalbul the bria, you're disturbing the entire structure God created. God created boundaries. He created parameters. And when you mix things, you're mixing and disturbing the structure. For example, a person says, let's... Graph the windpipe, the air pipe, and the food pipe. God forbid. There are boundaries that are necessary for the survival of existence itself. So then, how do we find exception? Because when there's special kedusha, either a special mitzvah from the Teda, that God says, this is what you do under these circumstances, or there's the proper bittl, where you have a complete, there's no self involved, there's a certain selflessness, then you get. Iskalos and Gedusha, the concept of Chester and Vuddha being mixed together. Who decides when yes, when no? That's where the Teda comes. The Teda says when it's allowed, when it's not allowed. More elaboration, look in the sources, a very fascinating subject matter. So we see, we see in life, there's boundaries, but there are places where there's complete coexistence and there's cooperation and there's complementation. It's part of existence itself, things complement each other. So you have to know where it complements each other and where it can be destructive. When the fox says to the fish, come out and live with, us, live with us on land, that was destructive. The fox was looking for a meal. When a bee pollinates a flower and takes the nectar to move it elsewhere, that's a scholar, that's in Kedush in Teva that meant to be that way. So you'll find in nature both elements, places where opposites should not be mixed together and places where opposites should be mixed together and actually bring something greater, a greater composite. Look in chemistry, in nuclear reactions. There are certain substances, you mix them together, they become volatile and they become um, potent and can be completely combustible to the point of destruction. Then other times there are alloys, you bring them together, create an alloy, and it creates a much stronger and much more powerful substance. In experimentation, scientists have phased both. Sometimes you try to mix two things together and it's a, it's, a fa- it's a fatal combination. And then times mixing together actually creates something even greater, like you have brass, or you have other different alloys that were created by mixture of different metals or different other energies and other gases and so on. Okay. One more question, them about Gaiden. Converts. How can people frown on marrying a gear? or having their child marry a convert, when it's prohibited to discriminate against Gerim. In this week's Pasha, we are taught not to mistreat converts. But the community routinely mistreats gayrim when it comes to Shuduchim. Often, Gezer labavitch. Well, there's another discussion, what is Gezer labavitch? People who feel that they are blue-blood labavitchers, Families prohibit their children from marrying Gerim. Isn't this a direct Aveda based on the stated Teter law in this chapter? So yes, any discrimination against gadim the says five times special Ava that you should show, because you were once a ger, you were once a stranger in a strange land, meaning in Mitzrayim, so treat gadim with the proper respect and so on. And God forbid any discrimination or any lack of love or any difference. So I'm not going to defend people who, who have their own, um, their own phobias about converts. The only thing I could say, and this is not in defense, is just pay- pointing out something, and that is that the same is true sometimes with Balichuvim. And again, that's, uh, that same question carries over. The justification they have, and again, I'm not defending it because I don't see any issue at all, is they say their parents may have not been in a mikveh, there may, there may be a situation with Gerim that they come from their genes come from non Jewish sources, but the fact of the matter is a Ger. Is actually a, a Jewish neshama that uh, is just basically trapped or has wandered off or has been placed by God in the wrong place. I can't say the word wrong, that's not the right way to say it. That's why I say Gershen is Gayer. You don't say Gershen is Gershen is Gayer means a stranger, a soul for whatever deeper reason. And I, I again the, uh, redraw, withdraw the word mistake. For some whatever reason, the wires of a Jewish soul ended up in a non Jewish family. So in truth, it's a Jewish neshama. But some people will say, you know what, but the bottom line is the culture they grew up with, the religion they grew up with, the environment, was a non-Jewish one. This is not a defense, but it's important to understand how people think. I would say that the fact is when we're connected with souls and neshamas and we appreciate neshamas and not just the cultural elements, we have a different attitude. But remember, this is not just about gedim or Balay tshuva. It's about people in general who want their comfort zone and very often don't think in the big picture. Their comfort zone is such that they're thinking in terms of what I like. And this has nothing to do with Gede and Balet Shuvah. They're people who don't want to marry certain families. Even though there's no shash of any type of, any issue of conversion or whatever their thoughts, their, or their fears are. Why? Because people are culturally comfortable in their comfort zone. Is that the right way to look at a shidduch? Absolutely not. And you look at, of course, the people like in the, throughout history, people like Moshe Rabbeinu, you look at Yaakov, who they married, they married families were not necessarily to tzaddikim. But people are comfortable, and sometimes they feel that way. Unfortunately, I myself have dealt with situations where people thought they would marry families they know, and end ended up being not such a good situation. They married someone they, they didn't know, but it was good quality. So I would say a shidduch is based on the features and personality of a person. The fact that some people stereotype or some people discriminate is not in any way to be condoned or justified, especially in light of the spirit of Taylor. But this is true in general. Even though we have the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael, love everyone, you see people uh, don't always do that. I don't want to speak negatively. They love They love sometimes only people that are like themselves, where they're comfortable. People agree with them. As soon as it's something not exactly like them, they don't like it, they don't trust different things. But this has nothing to do with gay or any other form. It's just a matter of people's comfort zone. Is that a Tata approach? Of course not. You have to look at a situation, at it case by case, See the type of personality. I've seen beautiful, beautiful soul, uh, uh, weddings, marriages, where Gatim, Gadim among Gatim, Gatim with non Gadim, etc. Meaning uh, uh, people born Jewish with people who converted to Judaism, and it's case by case. Is it something to be said that maybe two people who come from that background may have more commonality? You can say something like that, but I would not never say it in a discriminatory way. That would be, maybe may be more compatible, they'll understand each other more. Just as, God forbid, different situations where people who have a similar situation maybe makes more sense. Let's say people who are divorced, and they both have children. It's more, it may be easier than someone who's divorced marrying a person who's never been married. Even though we found beautiful, find beautiful marriages like that. And I absolutely admire them. I don't want in any way to be taken what I'm saying out of context. My point is, however, when we're using Das Tachn and trying to make a shidduch, Often you try to find people, similar situations, sometimes helps in the empathy, helps dealing with similar challenges. But by no means is this a justification for any type of discrimination. I hope I was clear about this. I also spoke about this a bit in episodes 47, 219, and 240. I'm sure this will list more questions and we'll talk about them as well in time. Okay. Okay. With that, some more questions. And I again... I encourage you all to ask your questions. There is a backup. Yes, there is. I admit that. And I'm trying to connect them. I can think connected to a chapter or parsha. I are timely. I try to do them first. But I'm going in the order as they were received and bunching them together. So now we're going to talk about something that actually was related somewhat to uh, a few episodes back when I spoke about my Rambam, the Rambam's uh, yard site on Chof Tevis. I believe it was episode, let me just remember, maybe 291, 292. But our questions came in related to that. The first one's about discrepancies between Torah and science. So this isn't the first time we're dis- discussing this, but it's a question that comes up time and again, so in new, new, new terms, maybe new details. So here's the question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, can you please elaborate on the relationship between Taylor and modern science, more specifically on facts stated that in the Gemara and other sources, which are often found to be at odds with what we know of the world today. For example, the Gemara states that the gestation period of a snake is seven years. However, we know of no snake whatsoever that gestates nearly that long. It can range from a few weeks to a few months, but nowhere near seven years. There are many other facts throughout the Theta literature that contradict clearly observable phenomena. I know from reading the Rebbe's letters that his approach is that these things must not be taken metaphorically, being that everything in all of Torah is exact and true, and many of these things are applicable to halacha, therefore they must be taken literally. I know there are also places where the Rebbe explains some phenomena, such as spontaneously generating worms as true even though there's no evidence, and as absence of evidence does not mean evidence of absence. First of all, the answer does not sit well with me, for one, because there are so many of these instances, Talmudic statements at odds with modern knowledge, yet zero evidence of them being true, but also because it is quite a weak argument to base things off of. We generally do not say absurd things must be true simply because there is no evidence of absence. Essentially, why must we insist on holding statements which nowadays seem patently absurd to be true simply because the ancient sages believed them to be I know the Rebbe's argument is, that, that, is was, that it was really all given to Moshe at Sinai, but it, doesn't just, but it, it just doesn't satisfy. If we look at many of these statements in the Gemara and later works and compare them with secular scholars of the time, these seem to fall neatly into context. On the face of it, it seems that the sages simply studied the various fields of the time and thus were aware of these works. So it seems that we are denying this possibility and instead insisting on holding these statements to be true even today, when we are aware that there is no evidence of them because the sages said so. Perhaps they they would have said differently with our updated knowledge, just as they reflected the scholars of their time. It is essential to insist that it is all from Sinai. How do we reconcile this? Okay, so I have discussed this in the past, back in 291 briefly, especially in episode 130. So let's clarify a few points. Number one, I want to refer you to Lekut HaSichas, of Gimel, volume 23, the Sichan Shavuos. This was based on a Yechidus where the Rebbe spoke at length about the idea of Nishtano HaTivim, Did things change from the time of the Talmud. And what about the Teirah Nitzchis, the eternity of Teirah, when we're talking about matters like you're describing and others. So let's explain. The Rebbe's adamance is not just some type of God forbid stubbornness. We're dealing here with Teirah. When you start tampering with Tata, let's say based on our logic, then where do you stop? What happens if today there's a theory, a scientific theory that seems to contradict Tata? and 50 years from now that theory changes, and you go back and the Tata theory is, is, is held up, holds up. What the Rebbe wanted to avoid by all means was humans with their logic starting to tamper and say, oh, you know, let's change this, then change that. There are certain things that are established that Tata says so. Regarding the actual nature of things, First of all, the Teda itself says it's given permission to doctors to heal. And doctors healing today is very di- different than doctors healing a thousand years ago. That's why the medications suggested in the Talmud, the Chazal and Aposkim say, is Nishtanu Hativim. Nature has changed. So there could be, nature has changed. For example, even the snake you mentioned, maybe there was a snake like that, a prehistoric one, back then. The point is we're holding on not because we're looking for an absurd thing and then hold on because there's evidence. There's there's no absence of evidence because there's absence of evidence. No. It's because the Taylor says so. So we have something to stand on. And the Taylor's statement has more validity than all the science in the world because science is theories. And science changes. The Taylor doesn't change. When there's a contradiction either we have to dig deeper in the Taylor and see what it means or we have to look in science and see maybe there's a different theories. That's the approach of the Rebbe. And there are things that in Gashmi, so Elam as the Rebbe explains there, today do not hold up, even though the Tatas says this is the way it is in Chazal, it does not come down physically. That's why Medabed is Bel the tater speaks about things on lofty levels. But to just easily and give license to just without too much effort, say you know what, something doesn't seem to fit, change it. We'll open up the Pandora's box and you can go ahead and change all the Theda because a lot of things you could say today we shouldn't wash Nagelvasa. Why? Because that what Tata talks about the toxins and so on we know today doesn't exist. Maybe they're spiritual toxins. I mean I can go on and on. So I think the approach has to be such as knowing that Theda is divine, divine blueprint for life. Are there details in the Tata that perhaps don't manifest physically? Yes, absolutely. The Rebbe speaks about that too. Do we just say that about everything? Do we make it easy? No. There's the whole talk about Shabbos. That maybe the six days of the week were not really 24-hour days. And that's how you can explain the age of the universe far more than 5,780 years. The Rebbe rejects it because of the days were different days. Shabbos is based on seven 24-hour days as time is today. So you could say there's another way to look at it. And there are those that look at it that way. But when you take Taylor, you start tampering with that, then the next thing you can do is tamper with other things as well. So if they know that Teireh is God's blueprint for life, that's the most important thing to know. Then their God gave Chachmeh bagoyim tamin. There is wisdom by science, medicine and others. And they can develop theories and develop medication that didn't exist in the time of Mesh Rabbeinu, didn't exist in the time of Shas. And they actually help people's lives. They save lives. They fight disease. They provide for higher age expectancy. We don't say don't use it because the Teireh doesn't say so. Those instances where the Theda says something and it doesn't seem we have evidence of because the Theda says we're careful. We're careful to try to suggest that it maybe exists physically or maybe doesn't exist and it became extinct or something changed in nature, not in Theda. Or we say, and or, I should say, because it's always that in a certain spiritual place that reality exists. That's the general gist of it. And it's a very healthy approach because it's built again on axioms. Now, one more point I've made, and I make again. Wisdom in the world, scientific wisdom, that holds up and goes through the rigorous process of science is also understanding God's mind. Scientists say that. We're understanding how God used God's design and God's mind to create this universe and its rules and laws. So the same God that gave Torah and told us how to use the universe, what purpose it has, how to do a mitzvah, how to elevate the universe, also told us, also created a world with a, with a method, with a science, with a strategy, with design. And when we are seeking to understand that design and actually manipulate it for the betterment of mankind, of humankind, that's also part of developing God's universe. So if we have new technologies that help us uh, harvest grain, or other technologies that help us in medicine, or help us with other things in human needs, and we elevate it, to, everything is likvideh, to honor God, including technology, that's also part of God's plan. So it's one God that manifests in different ways. Tata is telling us what to do with our lives. And science tells us what is the way that God created the universe. What makes it tick? How can we make that work for us to improve our lives? How can we transcend time and space through technology, communications, and so on? Okay, another question in the same spirit was why, why not study different belief systems before determining what is truth? Why do we not do what Yisra did and look into other forms of worship? So the story, of course, is two weeks ago we read that Ma, that before Matan Teh, came. Why Yisra? Because Yisra was a person who was a scientist, a wizard, a sorcerer, whatever you want to call him, a person who knew all the wisdoms of the world, and he said, Kavaya, keavaye, godlomakolah lekim... Now I know that Avai, your God, your God is greater than all the gods, meaning all those that are worshipped everywhere. So the questioner is asking, why not learn from that? Let's look at other forms of worship and then come to understand Judaism. We see that Yisrael is praised because he tried every avedazar every form of idolatry. But then he, come to, he came to the conclusion that Hashem is the real God. That seems to be a proper way to determine the truth through listening to all ideas and determine which one is true, which is also what dayonim and judges are required to do when determining justice and truth. Yes, there's a law that they learn laws of Aved are because they need to know how to rule on it. Why aren't we obligated to take the same route? Instead, such an approach is mostly discouraged. Why is that? When trying to determine the truth, it is important to hear from every side and to weigh the arguments against each other. And that is the best way to come to the truest conclusion. Taylor agrees with this idea. When a dayan, a judge, wants to determine the truth, he has to listen to all the claimants and the witnesses, and only after listening to everybody may he make his decision. It appears that the teuter believes that this is the best way to determine the truth. Second, the courts have similar systems as well. If that is true, then why shouldn't the same apply when determining the truth, the, when determining the truth of religious beliefs? Shouldn't we study all the religions and philosophies, and determine what is the truth. Why doesn't the tale endorse that? The opposite is true. Such inquiry is generally discouraged. Why is that? Okay, so first I refer you to episode 291. In answering the question, I think two parts here. When people like Avram Avinu, who began from a pagan world seeking God, that's exactly what they did. Through process of elimination, they seeked, He first realized these idols are not nonsense, all the famous stories. Came to discover, looked at the sun, the moon, and the celestial bodies and realized that can't be God. And through a process of elimination, came to discover that God is something beyond that can be anything we can see, hear, taste, touch, or smell. Yisrael also, he came to understand it through his own process, but once someone went through that process, Don't we stand on their shoulders? Like today would be, say, someone's going to say, I need to study all the medicine for the last 5,000 years before I become a doctor. No, We, we trust that certain methodologies were used, some of them we debunked, some are used, and we study some of them. But we rely and stand on the shoulders of the giants before us. That's what knowledge is, accumulative. If your parents built a business, and they learned through trial and error and made mistakes, you say, no, I want to go through all the mistakes before I build. No, learn from them. Trust me, there'll be plenty of mistakes you'll make as well. But that's the whole point of trial and error. We learn from those that experience before us. So if a doctor, if it's been proven in a laboratory that, I, that a, a, a Tylenol, a Advil works, you're going to go study now all the methods, all the ways why? You trust. Is the trust ever misplaced? It could be. But that's what knowledge is. It's accumulative. So once they went through it, for us to have to go through this rigorous process of studying every discipline, besides the fact that it could take your whole lifetime and you'll never get to anywhere, this has already been done. When the Tata was given to us, it went through that process. Avram went through that process. Others went through that process. What Sanhedrin does is looks into the Hach, into Aveda Zara to see what is Aved Zara, not to understand taita better. They're not learning the laws of idolatry so you can appreciate what Tata says. They're looking at laws of idolatry to understand what is idolatry, what is not idolatry. Now that's the way we go yosher the way initially a person should go. That's what you do. You learn from those before you. If you need to certain things you research, you do research. And you build upon that. The Tata was given to us after it went through that. That's why Takamat and Tata came after yesterday. Because yesterday did that process that doesn't mean we all have to do it anymore. Now the tailor can come and say, now let me give you my, God says, my, my mandate. That's the best of them all. <clears throat> so that's the approach. Now, there are situations where a person, unfortunately or tragically or mistakenly, studied idolatry. And studied other schools of thought, other religions, other disciplines. And yes, then they come and discover Teirah and Yiddishkeit like Yisrael did. So we don't reject and say everything you studied was a waste of time. On the contrary, you can see a Yisrael like others can't. A person who studied, let's say, medicine. Or studied even East Far Eastern uh, religions. Buddhism and so on. So now they're where they are. So what, what's called Shuva? Tshuva is taking the sparks of what you've learned and harnessing it and directing it now what you've learned to the Teirah. Learn from that. Just like we talk about people who've been hurt and traumatized, they can help many people because they can describe and they have credibility. They went through the fire. But that's after the fact. So is there something we can learn from other schools of thought? It's always that way. But do you have to go there initially, especially if someone already did the homework for you? They already did the, paid the price. So the process is a correct one in general. But remember, we have a tale that's gone through... And we have people who went through, studied all the different schools of thought. So we don't have to retrace the steps, number one, not to waste extra time. Number two, it could be, create confusion, and you never end up going any, to any conclusion. That's the general response to that question. Okay, next question. Mechitza standards. What are the standards for mechitza according to the Rebbe? Whenever I hear that, I always say, according to Allah... I know in halach itself their opinions, so the Rebbe does state his opinion in that matter. So we know that the Rebbe wanted in his shul a mechitza where men could not see the women. On the other hand, we know that in halachic acceptable, that in halachic acceptable, mechitza is, is, is just a physical separation. In fact, according to Rebbe Moshe Feinstein, a mechitza need only be tall enough to prevent intermingling between men and women. Many shuls in the U.S. with mechitzas that are relatively short or have see through tops were built based on a Feinstein's position, sometimes with his explicit approval. Other leading rabbis who reached similar conclusions include Abyechiel Weinberg, Sride A, she says 1a, 214 in old editions, and Ab Yitzhak Yesif, Yalkut Yesif, Volume 2, Addenda 5. The question is this Does the requirement of having a mechitzah where men cannot see a woman is, is requirement, does that requirement apply to every? But a Chabad, at every Chabad house. Was this ever an explicit instruction of the Rebbe, or is it that according to the Rebbe, it's acceptable that a Beis Chabad have a mechitza used using a balcony style with no dark glasses, no curtains, making it theoretically possible for men to look at the women's section by turning around and looking up? Okay, two different parts. So yes, there are explicit instructions. There's a book that came out recently called Shlichim Kalachosah, where it brings many different issues connected to Shluchim citing letters and, and answers and fablingen's and Sikhs and so on. So there he cites a number of letters from Igris Kedesh where the Rebbe says clearly that the mechitzah should be minimum the height of a person. Because the whole purpose of it is not to see, not just not to mingle. It doesn't address that, but clearly the, the minimum is the height of a person, of an average man, which would be around five, six feet. Now there are things, which, if it was a mechitzah five feet, Can you deal with that and then slowly move it up to six feet? There are different answers to that. But that's basically the Rebbe's rule, more than once said it many times. This would be an answer to Bote Chabad for sure. But even to any shul that would ask the Rebbe this question. This is what most Poskim agree with. Are there those that say otherwise? Yes, but that's not the question at hand here. You're asking the Rebbe's position. Now, no mechitz at all? Absolutely not. Even See-through mechitza, also not, meaning with a glass, that's, that's see-through. It has to, be blo- has to be not be able to be see-through, for the man's side at least. As far as balcony goes, as old shuls are, and there are many shuls today, we see many Chabad shuls do have a balcony. That is acceptable, even though in 770 the balcony is up, but they also have glass. It's acceptable. I have not seen from the Rebbe directly on that topic, and I not, did not see it collected there either. If someone has something about that, please share it. But my, and this is not a, I don't say guess, but based on my, my recollection, that's allowed according to all P- poskim, Because you're not dealing with the same level. The fact that someone can look up, someone can also walk by, by, on the other side of the and look. There's a certain natural thing that people don't, go, don't look up, and it's about separation on the same level. Also, the Heirah was always a Miz- from Mizrach to of the Mechitzah should be, not from Tzofen to Darm. It means it should be from east to west, not from north to south. So these are some brief uh, comments on this, and if anybody has any further comments, please share with me, because uh, for the public's benefit. Okay. We're going to do a question, a follow-up. Let's see what kind of time we have left here. Since we spoke about secular studies, I'll do one. Emphasis on secular studies in the Lubavitch School from episodes 291-292, follow-up. Hi. I'm at a loss. The school where our daughters go to is officially a Lubavitch school. Yet every single Wednesday, the first thing they do when they come to school is learn secular studies. Depending on the teacher, if we're lucky, they will say brachas first. The morning blessings. If not, they say them, including davening, after secular studies about two hours later. Several years ago, we had the honor of having one of the Rebbe's secretaries come and visit us. I personally spoke to him about the situation. He told me that some years back when a Lubavitch school did the same thing, the Rebbe said to take my name off the school. My older daughter in high school has on Friday mornings davening math, Jewish history, science, math. It's no wonder the year of Shemayim is down. Okay, I've also heard that directive that it should be Hebrew studies. The Friedrich Rebbe was adamant about it to start with Hebrew studies. And I don't have much more to say than that. I'm not sure why they're justifying starting with secular studies, especially if it's considered a Chabad school. But I, again... They may have some directive, some basis on it, some justification, and I don't like to judge without hearing, um, uh, I would like to judge, period, but especially without hearing what that school has to say. So suffice it with that. Okay, so we did that one follow-up. What else can we do? Okay, so we'll do one more. Last week we spoke about Kasha and Shabashira, Shira, episode 296. Hello, Rabbi. Eating kasha on the week of Shabashir. Regarding the concept that the Rebbe would refrain from, and also we talked about tubishvat, that the Rebbe would refrain from calling 15 bishvat tubishvat, I recently came across the following on the internet. It says that there was a chosid that went into the Rebbe. It was a birthday close to tubav. And he said, My birthday is on tubav. And the Rebbe seemingly did not hear him, made like he didn't hear him. Until the chosid said, Chamisha asabav. And the Rebbe explained to him, in explaining why he ignored him when he said Tubov, he says, because Tubov and tubishvat is not a halachic concept. And it was introduced by those that wanted to confuse the Jewish personality and they turned it into like a secular type of name. Now, I don't have veracity. Do. Oh, I'm not sure of the veracity of the story. I'm just bringing it to your attention. Okay. Regarding kasha, that was the second thing we spoke about, in the Sefer Yem Yem Amavur, page 186, he brings that eating kasha on Shabbos is connected to the man, to the man, because on that Shabbos we also read about Lechman HaShemayim, the man that fell from heaven, that we read on Parsha's B'Shalach, hence there are other types of foods that are eaten by different groups of yidn on this Shabbos. And in Footnote 9 he writes, based on Sefer Sikhis Tophrei Sadiq Ches, that perhaps kasha was chosen simply because it was a special food and therefore it reassembles the man, it resembles the man. So there he talks about why they ate kasha and Yutaz special green kasha that had a certain, like more royal quality. There is the sikh, there in the sikh, the Fidik Rebbe explains, sort of al there's an idea of it in connection to the meaning of eating it on Yutaz Then he goes on, Agav, as a side note, in Luach, Dvar. It's broad that Kasha is alluded in the Pasuk of Oz Yosher. So that's Kasha's Kasha. Okay, thank you for that and that follow-up. Let's do the Chassidus question now, and then we will do the essays. So this question. So Chassidus question is actually a long question. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's based on the Chav Beis Shvatsi Chetov Shenun Beis. Let's go. The Rebbe began that Sikh, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. With that, and through that, all Jews are blessed. And then in the Sikh, he spoke about three kufas, three stages in history. So the question is asking, he says, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I greatly appreciate the tremendous influence your teachings have made on a global level, and I wish much continued success. On that note, being that you specialize, specialize in practical chsiddis, I was hoping you could clarify the following practical example so I can grasp it in a tangible way. My challenge is that he says the Rebbe introduces us to three stages. The integration of the 11 of the Yichud of Hashem into the 10 of creation. Because remember, there's Yud Shvat, 10. Yud Aleph Shvat was the day that's completely the Rebbe's Nisius, also connected to Yud Aleph Nissen, 11. And there's 22 Shvat is twice 11. So the Rebbe speaks about 11 and 10 and then 22 as in three stages. What happened in Tavshin Yud 10 and Yushfat? What happened in Tavshin Yud Aleph 11? And then what happened in Tavshin M'Ches Chav Beishfat? Three stages. And the writer writes, sums up the three stages. One is, he says, refers to the completion of existence. Number 10 is the Mispera it's a complete cycle. 11 is already transcendence. Right. And then we reach a third level, which is even transcendence of transcendence. Where the entire the world is already ready for the gaula and we've already polished the buttons. We all we have to do is open our eyes. So the questioner is asking how do you explain that in practical terms? Okay. Well, in Khiddis, there's a concept of mamala, sevav, and atmus. There's the divine as it manifests in existence. That would mean you align existence with the way God wanted it to be in the beginning of creation. And I.M. Bezi explains, before Matan and the Ovis, what did they do? They cleaned up the toxins that were introduced, the Zuma, the toxins introduced by Chetei Tzadas, by the eating from the tree of knowledge. The toxins that came generations after that, as we learn in Basiligani from the Medrashir Hashirim Rabba, that what? That each generation, the seven generations of sins and transgressions, misalignment, caused the Shekhinah to be more and more concealed. And Avram began the process of reversing the process of bringing the Shekhinah down until the, the seventh generation of Meshur Rabbeinu. So they realigned existence. Think of the machine got, got damaged. The machine got taxified. And now we're cleaning it up. So we clean the pipes up the way the pipes were meant to be in the beginning of creation. Then comes next stage. An Eir Chodesh. Mat and teda brought a new energy, an eleventh energy, more than the ten of cleaning up. Ten is the structure, the ten, misprashalom. Eleven is transcendence. You're bringing now a level of sevev kalaman that's beyond the pipes. You're bringing now, think of a student that is receiving from his teacher. So then he gets, wanders off, and then he gets himself back aligned to the teacher. So he understands, as his teacher first taught him. But then the teacher teaches him new revelations, that which he was not capable of understanding earlier. That's a new state. That's eleven. Then comes a a deeper state, the combination of an 11 and 11. There's the 11 as it transforms the 10, that's how seviv affects Mamala, so transcendence affects imminence. Yes, it elevates it. Then there's transcendence on its own, and then there's transcendence double, 22. And what's the story of that? Now you're reaching a level of Etzem, that's just that you're going beyond the beyond. I'll give an example in a moment but you bring it back that it infuses, save and mamala, they all become one higher presence. Think of an example would be an artist. It's a piece of art. So the art associates with the artist. Let's say you forgot or you ignored the artist, or you even defiled the art. So the first step is clean it up and make sure the artist, the art is aligned with what the artist wanted. Good. Then you just come to discover, one second, this artist, is he only an artist of this piece of art? He may have made other pieces of art. He may actually have the potential to make infinite pieces of art. That's already saved. That's like Svita Saint Ketz. That's not one defined art, which is the world as we know it. The, the divine, the art, divine artist as he manifests in this one piece of art. Now you're connecting to the artist and saying, oh, this artist is more than just the sum total of the parts. He's more than just, it's not just God is... Nature is God, but God is not just nature. God is beyond. Now you could stop there and say, okay, far is beyond. But then you say even more than that, that God is not even an artist. He's beyond being an artist. He's beyond any definition, not just infinite types of art. Beyond being the beyond. You come to a point where you can't define it in any type of definition. You can't say this and not that. When that is introduced, and that then infuses, and you realize that really even when God is an artist of infinite art, or an artist of a specific piece of art, is all really just in a component. It's just a piece. That garden in is infinite, beyond infinite. Chose infinite. And then the infinite shows of infinite possibilities. One finite is all infused. Then you have Chav Beis. You have transcendence within transcendence. What it means in practical terms is how we work with ourselves. Is you work according to Bechol Avavcha, the Bechol Nafshcha, Bechol Maydecha. What's Bechol Avcha? As much as you can. Then there's going beyond what you can. You push it a little more, like the Alter Rebbe and Tanya, Pedeq Tezvav. Me'epamit, Me'epamit Ba'achas. You add 101, like 11. 100 is 10 times 10. One more. So you go out of your natural comfort zone. Then there's Bechol Ma'it, that's L'chol Then you come to a point, Bechol Not just one. You completely L'chadchila you completely go to a place that's not even commensurate to the earlier stages. And then that comes back, to infuse and elevate and be integrated with the 11 and the 10, and then you have all three put together, and that's what gu'ula is. Gu'ula is the highest level. In Golas, you could have 10, then you could have 11, 11 which is transcendent, but then gu'ula is when you have it all integrated, that atzimus, sevim, are all seen as one thing via Daita. Hashem is transcendence, and is Hateva, God as a manifest within existence. Yeah, good. So now let us go to the essays. Three essays. This is all from Essay Contest 2019. And now, as I said earlier, we're just at the conclusion of this 2020. There's a few hours left for the deadline, so please take advantage of that. So the first essay we're going to do is... My paper's right. Here we are. Elem HaTeyu V'tikun BeChinuch. Tayu and Tikun in education. David Altman, age 43. Dineper Petrovsk, Ukraine. <speaking in Hebrew> He's a teacher and a rabbi in the... In the, in the institute, in the seminary in Dinepur. So it's a very short essay, but the idea is excellent, because Toyo you, and to you can remember, is functional, dysfunctionality and functionality. So he expl- explains in very brief terms, based on I.M. Bayes, how the concept of Toyo, an unhealthy structure in education, where there is imbalance, how that can be transformed into a structured and healthy structure. Now, the unhealthy structure, of course, can lead to Shvira Sakelem, which is shattering, which creates chaos. But when the parents and the educators all work together in harmony, that's t- kikun, then you have a true education system that's not clashing interests and conflicting interests. That's the gist of it. This essay and the others are posted as we speak on our site, chasidasapply.com, the essay section. And um, you also can receive it when you subscribe to our weekly emails which are very rich and, well, and stimulating on their own. The next essay is Get Real. Chani Wilhelm, age 36, Milford, Connecticut, Co- co-director Chabad of Milford. Okay. She begins with an anecdote with a person who's holding a cell phone and busy with it. and constantly trying to take a selfie and being frustrated. And she was very much disturbed by not being able to capture a great picture of herself. I've never met this girl, the writer writes, before and haven't seen her since. In fact, I may never see her again. But that incident left an indelible impression on me. I was struck by the incongruity of this teenager's facade of happiness, followed immediately by her real emotions of the opposite extreme. So this essay will address who are we really and how do we allow our essential selves to permeate the face we show the world so there's less conflict between, between the two. And first let's address a fundamental, more fundamental question. Are we real? Do we really exist? Using Dale Carnegie and Lahavdil Rebbe from the Fidu Rebbe Sefer Ma'amodim talks about this reality of our beings. Soul, body of course, and what means being a medaber? Not just a, a, a human being, but a medaber. And that's, the, that's being real. R is relate, being a medaber, a communicator. E is for educate, act, choose life, and live meaningfully. That's real. Relate, educate, act, live meaningfully. A nice, there's a nice structure here, a nice tablet, nice table, I should say. get a very good essay. I like reading it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And finally, the third essay, Hamizgedes Hayofa B'Yesed. The most beautiful uh, environment, structure, environment. Me'ire Nachimovsky, age 39, Be'er Israel. A teacher at Beis Chayet, Rivke. Okay. Much has been written, she says, on the way Chassidus addresses the challenges of life. Addressing all different issues that we face. That's why as we get closer to Gula and to the utopian world, we'll op- will open us new types of understanding of dealing with the challenges of life. So I want, she says, to try to do this approach to a certain situation. Um, the Rebbe's revolutionary approach Dealing with realities of the modern world situation. How you are not a product of it, but you become a uh, proactive force that can affect change. Using many different examples from the Rebbe's different approaches, how offense is the best defense, and we have the power to change the world. Instead of being a victim of it or a product of it. That's the discussion here and creating our environment instead of being a product of it. Good. Very well done. Using different tools, including joy, self-confidence, and le- leadership qualities, taking initiative. Another excellent essay. Thank you for that. And with that, we conclude this week's episode 297 of My Life, Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. If you're interested in dedicating a program, In honor or memory of a loved one, please go to chasidasupply.com. Donate. You could see different sponsorship opportunities. And, of course, submit your questions. And finally, I want to say, again, a few hours left to this year's contest. Don't miss out on the opportunity. It's an excellent opportunity just to writing or presenting something artistic. And, of course, winning a monetary prize is, of course, a great incentive as well. And I look forward, the judges look forward to review it all. And I look forward to be part of the process. And hopefully, we'll really be able to see great uh, production coming from the, all the creative different energies that we're already seeing and much more to come. Everyone should have a very simchadik, a very joyous chaydish a simchadik atomid, a constant joy, revealing the inner joy, the inner happiness that is the essence of all, all who we are. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidahsupply.com donate.